we were hearing the radio and in the news it came that Stalin died. The radio said, what a pity and what will be with us without Stalin. And at the end of the news, my father said, one communist less. Welcome to Cold War Conversations. Good evening. The stunning overthrow of Mikhail Gorbachev by communist hardliners dominates the news this Monday. Gorbachev was reported under house arrest as Soviet tanks took up positions throughout Moscow. Poland's military leader, General Jaruzelski, urged the Polish people tonight not to demonstrate on Tuesday, the second anniversary of the founding of the banned trade union Solidarity. And I'm here to host this final program from the German Democratic Republic for you. Laszlo Naj was one of the early members of the Hungarian Democratic Forum in 1987. The HDF became Hungary's largest political party following the first free elections in Hungary in 1990. In this episode, we hear the story of Laszlo's parents' life in 1950s Hungary and Laszlo's early life, including how he ended up at school with the son of West Germany's president. Before we start, I'd like to ask you to leave a review in iTunes or with your favourite podcast provider. It really does help us get new guests on the show and spread the word. If you'd like to assist us further with the costs of running the show, then head over to coldwarconversations.com and click on the support the podcast menu option to learn more. Thank you so much to all our fans that are supporting us financially. It is really appreciated. Now, back to today's episode. We start with Laszlo describing his father's experiences at the end of World War II. You know, my father was uh, a geodata land surveyor, an engineer, and uh, he studied in, in this uh, city where we live now, in Chopron. He, he was born somewhere else, but uh, that's why we live in this city, because he got fell in love with the city, and he said once in his life he will come back to Chopron. And really, uh, he came back, and um, uh, but uh, he graduated in 1944, and uh, you, you know, it, it was wartime, yeah, and all the students who graduated were recruited in the army, and uh, fortunately they were not captured here in Hungary, and they also didn't have to fight. They were not in in war; they were uh, actually on, on on training. So officially, they didn't get any. Uh, how they say they were not sergeants or something. They were simple, simple soldiers. And uh, in in Germany, in Bavaria, they were in May, you know, forty five when the war ended. Yeah. So they were very lucky. After half a year, he could come home because uh, there was no transport. You know, because the war was terrible. And uh, uh, for this half year. They were working, uh, they were free people because they were POWs, but only for three days. 
after they were freed and they worked on the in Munich uh, building uh, reconstructing their airbase there was an airport which was completely bombed down and they were working there after half a year he came home but you know the russian soldiers were here the soviets were here and his father said he should be very careful because the communists were already ruling the, the country and you know they were very suspicious if somebody came back from west who were POWs, they, they, they thought they are spies of the Americans or so on. And it was not so, you know, my father was a rich, uh, my grandfather was a rich person. He had a uh, business in Sombathei. This is a city 70 kilometers south of Ship uh, Shopron, where we live now. That was not a good passport, you know, at that time. My, my grandfather told him, they will call you to the police. You have to go in and you have to to write a CV. A CV, yeah. Yeah, write, write in the CV that your father is a worker and your mother is a peasant woman, a farmer woman, and such things. So not the truth. They have no time to control it, but learn exactly what you wrote because next week they will call you again, and then again a week later, and uh, you have to write it again. And then they are, uh, they checked, you know, uh, if if he wrote the same. And he went. He was really, really invited to the police. They said, write your CV, your life. He wrote his father is a worker, the mother is a farmer, peasant woman, etc. Next week he had to go again third time again and after finished because he always wrote the same thing he didn't have to go again and he was not checked somehow and he was not uh, not suspicious you know uh, he was very very lucky because uh, he got a job just on the Romanian Hungarian border in a forest because he was a forest engineer you know first uh, later, he became a uh, land surveyor, and that was good because it was very far from ev- from everything, you know, very far from big cities, and uh, you were not in front of their eyes, you know. That's why it was a very safe place. He had a lot of friends there, doctors and such intelligent from the intelligence who went there to disappear, from uh, you know to be in front of the eyes of the communists because uh, the, you know the old class old ruling class the intelligence of 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 the times before the war they were suspicious and they got problems uh, so he had a quite good life there then uh, in 48 he married uh, my mother and in 49 my sister my first uh, sister i have two sisters was born <laughs> it's a very funny story you know because she was born on the 21st of december you know that's the birthday of stalin i didn't and, know that <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we always make a joke with my sister when she has the birthday and my father you know he was a young man this was the first baby he had to run on on horse he was riding to to, to take the doctor and he forgot that he should have gone to Debrecen to a big city because in the company for which he was working you know there was a big uh, celebration uh, uh, birthday of Stalin was a big celebration 
You know, he was the only one who didn't appear. And, you know, they controlled it. Next day, he had to go to the center. He didn't know why. He forgot all this, you know. Yeah. Oh, well, you would. <laughs> and, uh, and there was a commission sitting at the table, and I asked him that, where have you been yesterday? Then, you know, then he remembers Stalin had burned and he said, oh, look, I had to run. I was riding on a horse to, to get a doctor because my daughter was born yesterday and he saw that the people became delighted and happy because they didn't want to do any harm to him, you know. And they were happy uh, to say that, oh, let us congratulate you because your daughter has born, is born on the same day as Stalin, and that's that's fantastic. <laughs> My father was not happy, happy about it because he didn't like Stalin, but that's why he didn't get any punishment. Otherwise, there would have been a punishment. You know, 49, it was already, we had very hard, very hard times in Hungary. And then uh, later uh, he, he he got another job at the same company, of course. But you know, it was usual that these young uh, engineers they were they left them to work somewhere three years or two years, and they had to go somewhere else. I don't know why, but and of course they knew that he's a conservative. They knew that he's a religious man going to church every Sunday. That he's not a communist. And, uh, you know, that was, he had a black label, so to say. And once, uh, it was in 51 or so, he got a job. He should have gone to Calabria. Calabria is a city just at the, at the Yugoslavian border. And, you know, this was, I think, in 55, when there was a big uh, problem, you know. Uh, Tito got, uh, uh, got problems with Mos- Moscow. Uh, with Khrushchev and uh, also Hungary, we almost had war with Yugoslavia and there were problems on the border, you know, the soldiers, the border guards were shooting each other sometimes, sometimes there were some some smaller battles and my father didn't know that, but fortunately he met a friend of him on the street in Debrecen, in the city, where the, just after the, he got his papers that he has to go to Calabria. And he said, oh, don't go there, because uh, already 10 uh, forestry engineers died already right. in the shootings, you know. And he said, they send you there because that's, that's almost an execution. That's a death sentence. Unfortunately, somehow my father could uh, say no, and he was not sent to Calabria. You know, it was a very, very, very uh, difficult uh, time. And then came 1956. Just in 1956, he could get a job in Sombatai in in the city where he was born. And later, I, in 57, I was born also there. And he was very happy because the family was there, you know, and the relatives, also the family of my my mother lived in Sombatai. And just when the revolution broke out, in these days, they were traveling to Sombatheim from eastern Hungary, which was not easy. You know, there were two small children, my two sisters, and just the taxi drivers wanted to go on strike. And uh, my father would convince one of the taxi drivers to make a last turn 
from one station to the other because they had to go from one in Budapest from one railway station to another one. This was, I think, the fourth or fifth of uh, November because the Russians were already in. And my sisters told me they still remember that uh, they were watching out through the windows, back windows of the taxi, and the Russian tank came behind the taxi. Wow. So, so, th- so this is the time of the Hungarian uprising of 1956. Yes, 1956. And then uh, uh, in these days, uh, my father met his friends, who were uh, most of them school friends from the university of that time, but they were already professors and assistants and so on at the university, some of them, because they stayed in the University of Sopron, and they convinced him to go with them to emigrate to Canada. It's an interesting story. Maybe I'm sure you don't know about it, but uh, it's interesting that this uh, forestry university in Sopron emigrated totally. All the professors and the students went to Canada. Right. And this was this was 1956. 1956, November. And, uh, you know, this unit and Canada created in Vancouver a Hungarian university, Forestry University, and they were teaching there in Hungarian. So all the, the students could finish the university and graduate from Vancouver, learning in Hungarian language, because, of course, the professors were also uh, Hungarians. But this university is still existing and working, of course, now in English. <laughs> yeah. And my father would have been teacher there, a professor there with my others, uh, fr- with his other friends. But he couldn't go because, you know, my mother was already pregnant with me. And uh, the doctor said there's a problem. And there was really a problem. Uh, one doctor said uh, there must be made an abortion because there is a, I have something, a problem. One doctor said I am already dead. And my father said, no, this child is okay. And he found a doctor who gave a lot of injections for my mother. But he said, now, you know, it was a very cold autumn, very cold winter, 1956 in Hungary. He said, you cannot go. You cannot emigrate, and so we stayed in Hungary. <laughs> so it's down down to you that your family. Yes, I was Hungary. the reason why we didn't emigrate, and uh, we are not so sorry about it because uh, you know our life was maybe harder, but more interesting than it would have been in Canada. <laughs> yeah how how difficult was it to get to leave Hungary at that time? It was, di- it was difficult because uh, in the first days uh, when the Russians came in, uh, it was easier uh, according to security because uh, there was no border guard on the border. They were not guarding the border, but you know there was no there were no cars, lorries, or so, or just a few. It was not not possible to take a train or to take a bus or something. So most of the people came somehow uh, near to the border with uh, train or because inside in the country, of course, there was transport. Uh, uh, but uh, they had to go over to Austria by feet. Right. And of course, you had to know the way, you had to know, you had to know how to use a map. Okay, my father was a specialist for that. Was not, but you know, it was cold. There was snow, 
Uh, you can see the archive uh, films. Uh, there are a lot uh, from uh, filmed on the Austrian border. Uh, the bridge of Andau is very, very famous. That was a bridge where many, many Hungarians went through between two two small villages to Austria. But, you know, you had to walk and kilometers and uh, with babies and pregnant women, sick, uh, sickness, what we had, you know, my mother and me, it was impossible. It would have been very, very dangerous. And that's why, uh, you know, about 250,000 people left Hungary and most of them had to go through uh, through the border walking by feet in cold times, in snow, so it was not easy. I found uh, a newspaper from the 50s, from the time when uh, Stalin died, uh, and uh, I read it. Uh, this was in the 80s, and uh, I read that, uh, of course, officially the people had to mourn uh, Stalin and the people were crying and for five minutes everybody had to stop. You can see in our high films that in Budapest, for example, the, there was a, a siren uh, sound and the people uh, were standing, not moving on uh, the, the trams, the buses, the taxis, the cars, everything stopped. Of course, it was controlled. The police was outside. And uh, I read in this newspaper that the Hungarians were crying, all the 10 million. And then my, I asked my mother, how was it? How was it? This was, you know, March 1953. And she said, ah, your father was preparing himself in the morning to go to work. And we were hearing the radio and in the news it came that Stalin died. And of course... The radio said, uh, what a pity and what will be with us without Stalin. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. And at the end of the news, my father said, one communist less. <laughs> <laughs> but he was not crying. <laughs> that was his reaction. At least oh. one communist less. So in 1960, I think your family moved to Chopron, didn't they? Yes, yes. After three years, uh, when I was three years old, we we... Uh, left uh, Sombathei, and uh, I, I remember only two things, uh, but I, it's a joke. <laughs> uh, I used to say that uh, my first, uh, the first thing which I, I remember from my life, and this is true, uh, 
uh, was uh, that we lived in a, a house, you know, it was a small house, three or four families were living there, it's in the middle of the city, and there was a small garden. And one of the families who were living there had a pig, and they kept him in the garden. And the pig was a, a black pig, and the name was Kadar. You know, exactly the name as Janusz Kadar, the dictator, who was the general secretary of the party, you know, who became, yeah. uh, 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 by the Russians, he was put there in 1956. And uh, I still don't know, my mother cannot also say that, because, you know, in 1960, to give the name Kadar for a black pig, <laughs> so it, the, must, the person was very, very brave, or he was working for the secret service, and that was a provocation. Yeah. <laughs> My mother doesn't know that, but yeah. there are two possibilities. And, you know, <laughs> we, we went uh, down uh, with my sister to the garden, and I had a piece of bread in my hand. And, uh, and of, uh, the pig realized, you know, I was only three years old, and the pig realized the uh, bread, and he was running to me. He wanted to pinch it. He wanted to, to take it from my head. And, you know, a three-year-old child has a very small hand. He could have chopped my hand together with the bread, and my sister was uh, fortunately very fast and uh, clever. And we were running in the staircase, staircase, the stairhouse, and she banged the door. And uh, we—I remember—we were uh, standing there, you know, not—we uh, didn't get air. And later, I thought, you know, that maybe I only remember because they told me this story. And I was already a university student, and I went back to this house in Sombathe. Uh, I was not there since then. And I realized that uh, the picture which I saw, this gate, this door, which were, there were, you know, uh, colored uh, glasses in it. And I, I remember still clearly till now, of course, because it was an extreme situation. And then I saw that really... I remember well, and it was not just told me because I remember these colors. So, and then I spoke also with a doctor, a neurologist, and he said that uh, with the age of three, you can uh, remember things already if you had an extreme situation, for example, a danger like in this, mm -hmm. this time. But I used to tell this story because I used to say that, look, I was already chased politically. I was attacked by Janusz Kadar <laughs> when I was three years old. <laughs> of course, it's a joke, but the, but the pig was called Kadar. That's true. <laughs> the rest is not true. So what, what were your school days like? Uh, well, you know, uh, uh, my school days started uh, in 1964, I think, yes, in Chopron. And uh, I, I went to the same uh, primary school where my sisters also uh, studied and uh, well uh, uh, first years uh, uh, were boring for me and I also had problem with the school teacher because you know I had two sisters and you know what the two sisters what they can play with the boy they couldn't play football <laughs> so they played always uh, school so we played at home all the school. There were the teachers, and I was the student. And you know, when I was five years old, I could read and write 
and uh, use numbers and counting like uh, somebody who is the second uh, class or first class uh, in, in, in uh, going to the first class or second class in the primary school. Yeah. And that was dangerous because, uh, you know, it's not, uh, but they were good teachers <laughs> uh, because I didn't have problem about it. I only had a problem with my teacher that because uh, I was, you know, they started with A and then B and C, you know, how it is starting at the school. Mm-hmm. And it was boring for me. And I I was not ready to to make that, to do that exercises which she asked for as the others because I already knew that. I was reading books, you know, uh, when I was five. And somehow she didn't understand it, uh, that that's the problem. And uh, for the first two, three years, we had a lot of conflicts. My luck was that uh, the fifth, uh, you know, in the fifth year, in Hungary, it was uh, the system was so that in the first four years, we had almost, almost only one teacher. And uh, this teacher was teaching mathematics and uh, all the other things, reading, writing, grammatics, so on. And uh, at the fifth class, we got a lot of teachers. And, you know, new subjects came like history, geography, and so on. And then my sisters were already looking after the boys, <laughs> not <laughs> playing with me school. So these things were new for me. And I liked it. You know, uh, I like geography. I like history very much. And school started to interest me. And uh, I was a bad uh, student in the first three, four years, you know, because I had these conflicts with this teacher. And she punished me always that I got bad marks. And in the uh, class five, you know, the whole class was uh, amazed, amazed, and a bit, a little bit also me that I was the only one in the in the class who got the best marks from every subject, because it was interesting me very much. And from that time on, I liked school. Before I didn't like it. <laughs> right. So these were the first five years. And and did you have to join the Young Pioneers or anything, any of the communist organizations? Uh, yes, of course. There was a, a, a first day, you know, you, uh, there was the small drummers in English, the Kishdobors in Hungarian, that was uh, under the five class in the first four. And we had to wear when there was a, something... Uh, a blue tie and the pioneers after the class five i think as far as i remember uh, we had to wear a, a red tie and it was very interesting for me and now i will jump in time very much mm-hmm. because uh, in every school there was a teacher who was in charge for this pioneer uh, movement and our um, uh, physical education teacher was in charge. And then, uh, and now I jump in time, in 1990, uh, when we start, 1988, I'm sorry, I joined here in Chopron. Uh, later we will speak about it, the Hungarian Democratic Forum. I founded it with five friends of mine. This was the first oppositional organization in the city. We had the uh, uh, you know, some events so that we invited the people of Chopron 
we rented a, in the cultural house a big room and uh, we were speaking about politics and many people came. And then I saw him, our physical education teacher, and he was one of the hardest anti-communists <laughs> in these times. And I met him. He was very happy because uh, he remembered me. And he told me that he hated this pioneer movement. And, you know, the director called him and he said, look, you will be in charge for the pioneers. And, you know, you couldn't say no, because, of course, you could have said no. But then they would have thrown you out from the school or or, or they would have been, you would have gone to, you would have to go to the, to the police station for hearing or, you know, there were a lot of things which were inconvenient. And, you know, he said he was biting his mouth <laughs> and, and he did it because he had to. But in his heart, he was an anti-communist and we didn't know that. No, no. Wow. And, and did you have to learn Marxism and Leninism? In that, class? that was later because, you know, for these children in the primary school, uh, they didn't, uh, we didn't have to learn such things because we were too small for that. Uh, you know, in that time, uh, uh, we we had to read uh, stories of of uh, pioneer heroes from the Soviet Union, which we later learned that they were not true. They were stories which were just written by by people who were ordered to write uh, such things, and uh, they were uh, stories how heroic uh, the pioneers were fighting against the Germans in the war, how they were helping the partisans and such things. This we had to read, but but uh, you know the real politics uh, that came later in the secondary school. But uh, in Hungary, I was not attending secondary school because when I was uh, in class eight, just before the secondary, secondary school starts in Hungary with class nine. And then uh, my father was uh, sent uh, as expatriate to, to Africa, to Nigeria. This is also an interesting story. And I finished my secondary schools in Nigeria and later in Germany. And I came back in 1975 to Hungary when uh, I became a soldier because uh, I uh, joined the Technical University of Budapest. I studied chemistry, but at that time uh, it was so that if you were a student, uh, before uh, joining the university, you had to go to the army for 11 months. And uh, <laughs> I came from a West German boarding school, one of the most uh, well-known and very expensive, I don't know how my father could pay it, uh, uh, boarding school where even the, the son of the head of state of Germany, he was my schoolmate, my classmate. Andreas von Weizsäcker. And from there, directly, I came in the Communist Army of Hungary. So it was a big change, you know, a very big change. So my life was not easy. <laughs> that's, that's, that's an amazing story. That. Um, can I just go back? I mean, it, it, I would have thought it's unusual for somebody who's not a member of the Communist Party to be given a job in yes. Africa. Yes. Why, why it, was that? 
we were very, very lucky, extremely lucky, because, you know, I could thank a lot for this, because I learned uh, English, first of all, you know, because uh, first I went to an English school, and uh, for one year, because, you know, Nigeria was an English colony, and then uh, I joined the German school, because uh, that there was a very good German school, so I learned germ- German in, a, in, 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 in Nigeria, and of course, for me, to go to another country, another continent, another culture, and to learn languages in such young years, it, it, was, a, it was a gift, a present, you know. But uh, our luck was that um, the company, you know, everything was nationalized in Hungary and centralized. And my father was working uh, by a, at a state-owned land surveying company, but there was only one. You know, because Hungary is a small country and, you know, everything was centralized. So many things were centralized in one company. And, you know, land surveyors, you don't need so many. Of course, there are a few hundred. I don't know how many there were. I think there were 800 people who were working in this company. And there was no other company. And uh, there was a, a contract. This was organized by... Um, uh, you know, that time uh, the companies couldn't have direct contact uh, f- abroad. So the Hungarian companies, produ- for example, factory, a factory could export, of course, goods to west to Western countries, but not directly. Always through a trade company. They were they were state-owned trade companies, which were later, as we learned after 1999, they were part of the secret services, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, because they had contacts uh, with the Western companies and because they were traveling a lot, many of them were agents, not all of them, but many of them. And only these companies were allowed to sign contracts with uh, companies abroad, also East and West. And uh, one of these uh, trading uh, companies, export companies, were uh, special, specialized for the field of uh, intelligence. So selling uh, uh, under intelligence, I don't, don't, don't understand uh, secret uh, things, but they, they were selling, uh, uh, how to say, they, they made, for example, in Nigeria, in our case, they made a joint venture with a Nigerian company, a Nigerian land survey com- company, and they needed... Uh, engineers, and they needed somebody who would be the technical director who would organize the company, and this was my father. But why? Because uh, he was the only person in the company who spoke English. And this was our luck. He had a very good friend. He he was a very good guy. He just died last year uh, here in Chopron. And he he was a party member. But he liked my father very much. They were good friends. And he told me that there was a meeting uh, of the party members. You know, it was always every second week, or I don't know, there was a meeting. And he told my father that somebody stood up and asked the party secretary of the company that why my father will be sent to Nigeria, because he's not a communist, he's not a party member, and he's religious, and every Sunday they are in the church, the family, and why they don't send the communists. And imagine the party secretary said that there were three criterias 
regarding this job. They needed somebody who is a very good organizer, who is a very good skill, skilled engineer, and who speaks fluently English. Uh, unfortunately, there is only one in the person in the company like that, and everybody knew that, of course, and that's my father. And he said that if there would have been one person in the Communist Party who would uh, speak English, uh, they would have sent him, but there was no other choice. And this was our luck. Imagine there would have been only one communist speaking English. Uh, We wouldn't speak now. (laughs) No. How how did your father learn English? Ah, You know, because my father was a workaholic. He was working uh, instead of three persons. So uh, he worked for this company, which had a department in Chopron here, because the company was, of course, in Budapest, a central company. But there was a department in Chopron, and there was a department in Jör, 90 kilometers from, uh, uh, away from Chopron. And he worked in Chopron, but to earn more money, uh, and he was asked also, because he was a very skilled person, uh, to be the leader of the department in Jör, but he should work also in Chopron. So three or four days a week, he went every morning with the train to Dior and came back in the evening, which was one and a half hours, almost two hours. So he woke up very early and he was uh, one and a half hours or maybe two hours. I don't know because that time the train was very slow, although it's only 90 kilometers. And, you know, my father was a person who, who would have been bored to sit two hours on the train. And he bought a, an English uh, uh, lesson book. Uh, it was, I remember, it, the name was Essential English. It had four bands. And that time, I think that was the best English language uh, book which you could buy. And he was learning in the train, but without teacher. But, you know, almost four hours a day. And he learned English very well. And he found somebody in Chopron, and an old man who lived for decades in the USA. And he came back to Hungary after retirement. And he, on weekends, when he was uh, here in Chopron, for a few hours, he went to this person and he paid for him. And they were talking. So he could speak English and he could learn the pronunciation. That's why he had an American pronunciation. (laughs) (laughs) And this is the way how he learned English. And we didn't know, we always said, why you do that? Uh, It's it's a lot of, it's very, very hard to learn without teacher and working so much English. He said, sometimes, sometimes it will be good for me. And he was right. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Wow. So, how how long were you in Nigeria for? Uh, you know, we my father left Hungary March uh, nineteen seventy, and he stayed seven years, which is also an interesting story, because uh, it was not a law; it was not uh, written anywhere. But uh, it was usual that after five years, everybody had to go back to Hungary, and. Uh, uh, even the ambassadors, they always changed everybody. Uh, but because there was nobody 
who could go to Nigeria in, instead of him from the company. At the end of the, he was very tired. You know, it was very hard work, and uh, all the family came back. Even my mother came back. I was at the university. My sister, one sister who was with us, got married with a Greek engineer. They were already in Kenya. Uh, my other sister was in Hungary, and he was alone there. He wanted to come home, and he he almost had to pray <laughs> for the company that he should be substituted with somebody. And at last, they found somebody in 1977, and then he could come back. I was only four years because uh, I was one year in the English school, then uh, two 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 year two and a half years in the German school. You know, it was uh, because, uh, you know, the German school is starting in September, the English school in January. So there was a jump. And the last uh, school year I finished in Germany, as I already told you, because the German school in Lagos, where we lived, that was the capital of Nigeria then. Now they changed it. Abuja is now the capital. That's another city. Uh, in Lagos, in the German school, there was... Um, it was not a full secondary school, and that's why my father found a school, a boarding school in Germany, that I can finish my secondary school in the same school system. And that's why I lived one year in Germany. Uh, I didn't speak Hungarian for one year. <laughs> yeah. So my German became so good that at the end of the year, somebody asked me, are you from Hamburg? <laughs> because he felt something, you know, in my pronunciation. But I said, no, I came from Hungary. I didn't want to believe it. <laughs> wow. Well, so, so that must have been that must have been quite a uh, shock moving back to Hungary from a country like West Germany. Yes. You know, uh, I knew, of course, I was prepared for that because uh, uh, you have to know that uh, from my childhood, when I was very small and my uh, I was very interested in history because my father was always uh, reading history books and he politics, and he was hearing every evening the Radio Free Europe. And I was sitting beside him, and because, you know, the Radio Free Europe was an American uh, radio based in Munich, mm -hmm. and uh, they were broadcasting in every East European language. So there was Polish, Romanian, Hungarian, Slovakian, Czech, Russian, broadcasting, Bulgarian, etc. And from there, we could really know what is happening in the world, what is happening in Hungary. <laughs> you know, because in the Hungarian newspapers, the communist newspapers, they wrote only what they wanted. But, uh, for example, about 1956, there were a lot of programs in the Radio Free Europe. Uh, historical issues were also, it was, was not only news, you know, there were cultural uh, uh, issues and uh, history in 1956 and uh, also from the war and I learned uh, history and politics uh, sitting beside my father from Radio Free Europe so uh, I knew that it will be not easy and you know the 70s were still uh, they were not so bad as in the 50s also you cannot compare because uh, the times before 1956, I think uh, it was in Hungary the worst. It was it was worse than Romania under Ceausescu. It was worse than uh, East Germany under Honecker. Mm. 
And in the 1970s, they were <laughs> so-so. It was uh, not so hard, but, you know, if you had a different view, political view, you had no much future, no, no much future. <laughs> and uh, exactly in the army, you know, you know, you, you, it was very dangerous if you were talking free something against against the regime because there was a political officer and everybody was hearing everything, you know. And uh, we had um, there we had. Uh, you asked me before, but you know I was not in secondary school here, so I don't know what uh, was in the secondary school regarding Marxism. Of course, I know because I heard that there was, uh, for example, in every school, in every secondary school, there was a, a subject, the base of our uh, worldviews. If I think uh, maybe I can, uh, I can uh, translate it like that. And this was uh, every week, I think, one lesson, and there. The children had to learn everything about Marxism, communism, and so on. This is what, uh, fortunately, <laughs> I didn't have to do because I was not in Hungary. But uh, in the army, we had, um, I don't know, every two weeks or so, there was a, a lesson. We had to go in a, in a classroom, and and somebody came, a political officer or one of our officers, and they were, uh, they hold, it, it was like a school lesson, you know, they were, they were teaching us uh, communism, Marxism, and so on. And in the first, no, you know, nobody, we were here, we didn't hear it, it went, went in, in the left ear, and went out on the right ear. But uh, I was the only one, because, you know, I was, I was new, <laughs> And in the first time, I, I, I was discussing with the officer, and everybody was, my friends, you know, because we were, you have to know that we were together, who, who went to the university, to the faculty of chemistry, the, all my school friends later, we were together in the army. You know, oh, right. So, so you're, you're all together with your yes, friends. Yes, that was very good because, you know, we went to the university and we had a lot of friends. We knew each other. For the girls, it was not easy because they didn't know anybody. But, you know, at least we knew the half of the <laughs> students because uh, the chemistry, 50% were girls, 50% were boys. And we knew each other. And so all my friends said, don't ask, don't, don't ask questions. It's useless. It's nonsense. And of course they were right, but uh, I realized it on the first time. And then I stopped. And I never asked because, you know, there was only trouble. But I tell you what happened. Because it's also a very interesting story. You know, in Germany, uh, I was living in the boarding school because that was a boarding school, and I had a roommate. He's a good friend. We still keep the contact. And we we bought every week Der uh, Spiegel, you know, this uh, German uh, newspaper. Newspaper, yeah. And uh, I read every week the Der Spiegel. And of course, because it was interesting for me, it's a political uh, newspaper and very good. Uh, and uh, imagine I, I came home to Hungary so that for one year I read read every week <laughs> the Spiegel. And just in that year, uh, there was a six-page article 
about the Hungarian reforms. You know, in 1968, uh, just in the time when there was the problem in Prague, in Czech Republic, uh, Czechoslovakia, the Hungarian uh, Communist Party uh, invented an economical uh, uh, reform, which was, uh, I have to tell you, a big thing, because, uh, uh, of, of course, it was only a step in the direction of free market, but a uh, small step. <laughs> but, you know, something didn't happen in, in Poland, in Romania, in Soviet Union, forget about it. And it, it, it made a, a better life in Hungary, really. There was, that was a positive change. And uh, it was not uh, invented as it was planned, because uh, just uh, Prague, spring of Prague came, and Moscow didn't allow for the Hungarian Communist Party to invent the reform as it was planned, only a part of it, so the half of it was, uh, was, was made, but even that brought a benefit for Hungary and for the people. But 1973, uh, Brezhnev, you know, he was very conservative. He didn't like this, this reform, and uh, he ousted the leaders of this reform. So Rezhonyers, for example, who was uh, a member of the Politburo, and he was the economist, uh, the leader of the... Because it was an economical reform. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he was ousted, and uh, the, pri- the prime minister Janu Fok, he was ousted, and uh, Lajos Fehér, who were the leaders. One day, all of them they were ousted, and the reform was uh, turned back. Uh, hard times came to Hungary, and about this there was a six-page analysis, a very interesting article in the Spiegel, in which, of course, they praised Rezhonyers that this was really the first attempt in the East, something new, something, a step in the direction of free market and so on. And then uh, the the officer who was our boss, our officer, uh, uh, where I was a soldier, he was uh, making this lesson. And he spoke uh, about Rezhonyers in a very bad way. He criticized him. And they didn't like that because, uh, okay, I was not a communist and uh, Nyeresh was a communist, but he did at least something positive. So I stood up and said, look, uh, I, I don't agree with you because this reform was not so bad because that and that. And I told my arguments, which I took, of course, from the figure. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was a discussion between us. And at the end, he said, from where do you know all this? Where you, do you have this information? I said, look, guys, I read the article in the, in the Spiegel about this, and then he stopped me and he said, if the Spiegel is writing something about us, about Hungary, positive, that means that we made a big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and then really I good. said... There is no use to, to, to make any discussion with such a person. And I sat down and I didn't speak again. I didn't ask any question again when a political lesson came. Yeah, I, I would imagine that it would be difficult to get a Western newspaper in Hungary. Or 
Yes. So how, that, how did you manage to get the, the newspaper on a regular no, that basis? Was, you know, that was the year before. Oh, okay. It was the year before. When yeah. I was in the school. Right. Oh, okay. German school. But, you know, I came, I came home September, end of August, and September I had to go to the army. And let's say this was in October. And, um, you know, it was a fresh thing for me. And I remember in Hungary it was impossible you know, you couldn't get uh, uh, only in some international hotels uh, in Budapest, in uh, Interconti or somewhere you could buy for dollars, maybe. Uh, but, you know, they didn't let you in as a Hungarian <laughs> normal citizen. The tourists, the Western tourists could buy. But in the shops you didn't get, uh, you, you could get a, a New York Times or Spiegel or, or, or anything, you know. Only if uh, a friend or a relative came from Western Europe and he brought newspapers with him. Yeah. Did you and still did you still write to uh, Andreas von Weizsäcker when you were back in Hungary, or was that too dangerous? For no, you to do? no. Uh, we 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 didn't have contact. I had contact only to my uh, uh, my roommate and his brother, as far as I remember. And a Hungarian boy who was in the school, but he couldn't speak Hungarian. He, 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 he was. His name was Eric Sabo. He was two months old when, in 1956, his parents left Hungary, and uh, they were so angry at the communists and Hungary that they didn't teach him Hungarian. It's interesting. He asked me to teach him, and I gave him Hungarian lessons. <laughs> <laughs> but, but later, how is the story? Uh, after the 90s. He came to Hungary. He lives in Budapest somewhere. Now I lost contact with him, but uh, he lives in Hungary and he learned Hungarian properly. <laughs> but that time he couldn't speak Hungarian. So with such people, with Weizsäcker, I didn't keep the contact. Once we almost visited him because uh, I was in Germany. I visited my friend in Regensburg, who was my roommate. And 400 kilometers away, uh, there was a... Uh, exhibition because he became an artist you know uh, he died unfortunately i think uh, six or seven years ago uh he had cancer and he became an artist and he had uh, an exhibition and we wanted to go to the opening ceremony to meet him but at last i don't know something happened and we didn't go because it was too far or something and so that's why i didn't meet him again but he was a very good football player you know and we played together football and uh there was a competition in the school that every class had a team and uh, it was a competition and we won the competition because, and I was I, I shot the most goals because uh, Weizsäcker gave me so good balls. He's a very <laughs> good midfield player, you know, and it's very interesting, you know, because uh, all the Germans wanted to play midfield or libero because Franz Beckenbauer was the big star, you know. He was really one of the best football players, a German. And, uh, you know, he was the idol and everybody wanted to play in his position. And nobody wanted to be a striker. But, you know, the Hungarians are individualists and we had a Ferenc Puskas, who was the greatest football player of the world in the 50s. And he was a front player, you know, a striker who was shooting the goal. And all Hungarians, they always wanted to be strikers. Nobody wanted to be a defender. It's very interesting. But the Germans, they all wanted to play in the back as, 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 as Beckenbauer. And he also. And I was alone in front. <laughs> and they gave me so good balls, especially Weizsäcker, that uh, I, I, I shot most of the goals and we won the competition. So, uh, 
<laughs> no, that's a good. Uh, no, th- those stories are great. I like. I like those. I like those stories. Well, that's it for today's episode. We'll be returning to Laszlo's story as he becomes more involved in Hungary's democracy movement. So stay tuned for that one. Don't forget to visit the show notes at coldwarconversations.com where there's details of books with more background about Hungary and links to some videos as well. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. We're also on Twitter at Cold War Pod and Instagram at Cold War Conversations. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.